Welcome to the Empty Chair podcast, brought to you by Penn South Africa. I'm your host, Nadia Davids, the current president of Penn South Africa. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn marks the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there is an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that the podcast takes its name. Each of our five episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison, a writer who has been curtailed, harassed, detained, tortured, sometimes fatally by the state. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with Dr. Stella Nianzi. Dr. Nianzi is a medical anthropologist, feminist, poet, and human rights activist. She was awarded the Oxfam Nova Penn International Award for Freedom of Expression in 2020. She's also known as a fierce public critic of Uganda's president and a practitioner of radical rudeness, a traditional Ugandan strategy for unsettling the powerful through the tactical use of public insult. She was jailed for cyber harassment in relation to a poem she wrote on Facebook in September 2018, criticizing President Museveni. She served 15 months in Luzira Women's Prison, the maximum security prison for women. She published a collection of poetry about her time in prison, No Roses From My Mouth, Poems in Prison. After Museveni's re-election, she fled Uganda to Kenya with her children. Dr. Nianzi is currently in exile in Kenya, applying for refugee status. In this, our fifth and final episode of our season, Penn South Africa board member Susonkim Simang is in conversation with Zubeda Jaffa. They consider Zubeda's work, the subjects of her books, and her experience of living with uncertainty during the pandemic. Our chair, Susanke Msimang, is the author of Always Another Country, a memoir of Exile and Home, published in 2017, and The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela, published in 2018. She's a South African writer whose work focuses on gender, race, and democracy. She's written for a range of international publications, including The New York Times, Bloomberg, and Al Jazeera. Susanke has held fellowships at Yale University, the Aspen Institute, and the Bellagio Center. What you're gesturing towards is the role of the writer, which is to help people make sense of the spiritual and emotional tumult of the times. Sibeda Jaffa is an award-winning South African journalist, author, and activist. Her work has earned her numerous local and international awards. She's helped with developing local community newspapers at the grassroots during a time of resistance to apartheid. Her stories have appeared in newspapers across Africa and more broadly in countries like Japan, India, the UK, North America. She's also the first woman in Africa to have won the coveted Foreign Journalist Award from the National Association of Black Journalists in the United States. Zibeda has recently started her own publishing house, Number 10 Publishers. Her participation in this series is especially meaningful to us at Penn South Africa because she herself was once an imprisoned journalist jailed by the South African apartheid government for her writings and her activism against an oppressive state. Zibeda gave an extraordinary and powerful testimony in 1996 at the TRC and has spoken about the need to redefine the national narrative and her work has been so crucial in doing this. I'd witnessed so much firsthand, been in the belly of the beast. I'd seen the humiliation visited upon the black man 
In this intimate and inspiring conversation, Zubeda talks about writing in difficult and joyous circumstances, her certainty during the struggle, and her life and the hope she holds now for future generations. Zubeda, welcome. It is so wonderful to be speaking to you. You're a very, very busy woman. Sisonke, it's an absolute pleasure. I am just thrilled to be speaking with you because you have injected a lot of fresh energy into, into the country. So, you know, it's just such a pleasure for me. Thank you so much, Zubeda. So in this conversation, I would love us to talk about writing in many different circumstances. And because, of course, we are thinking about and commemorating the empty chair of pen. Part of what I would like to do is to talk about writing in difficult circumstances. But of course, because South Africa is now free, I would also like to talk about writing in joyous circumstances. In particular, our conversation is dedicated to the fearless Stella Nyanzi, who is in exile in Kenya because of the ill treatment she has received from the Ugandan government. So first, I, I, I really want us to talk about what it means to be in this current state we are in today, which is this in-between thing where we aren't quite free, but we are not detained. We're in lockdown. What has lockdown been for you, Zubeda? Yes, I think uh, Sisonke is saying that we are free and yet, you know, we're in between. It's a very real factor. And COVID and the experience of the last year has almost added another layer of complexity to our life. And one thing that struck me that we, what it's done is that it's brought us face to face with the fact that we are living with great uncertainty. And if I look back and I compare to the time of the years of the struggle, Although that was a, a very, very difficult and dark time, we, we tended to operate with certainties. We tended to, in our minds, you know, have a great deal of certainty. We, I remember in um, 1985 when we were preparing for Madiba's release and the government did an about turn and refused the EPGs, the eminent person group's quest to release him. I remember a young activist coming to me and crying and saying that, you know, you know she felt it was the end of the world, that, you know, the, she said, they're not going to release Madiba, there's not going to be change, people are not going to come out of jail. At that time, there were 30,000 people in detention. Hmm. And I remember having the... I don't know where I got it from, but I think it was this, this a notion of certainties. I said to her, I looked her straight in the eye and I said to her, look, uh, I want to tell you <laughs> that Madiba is going to be released. The exiles are coming home. The, the detainees are going to be released from prison. And we are going to have a democratic free election uh, in this country. But the only thing I can't tell you is when. Mm. And when I look back at that, then I feel that, you know, I thank God that 
that that was the that is the basis upon which I coped with the mm. with the situation. I do believe still that we are continuously moving towards what we fought for, but with COVID, it's just introduced that entire you know sense of that nothing is in our control. We can proceed with no certainty, and that is something that writers and journalists are not successfully, I think, communicating with the broader public. We are not interrogating it. And it's something that we need to interrogate that actually nobody knows. I think that's such an interesting and important point. I I, I want to go back a little bit to ask you about where that sense of certainty came from. Because you're not the only, you know, activist from those days who I've heard speak with this level of clarity and certainty that that at the time all of you knew and I wonder where that came from. I think because the system of authoritarianism you know which flowed from Nazism really which had its basis you know in 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 that ideology was so unacceptable was so so wrong was so awful that there wasn't a possibility in our minds that, you know, we could allow to continue. So however long it was going to take, it had to be destroyed. And I had witnessed so much firsthand, been in the belly of the beast, I'd seen the humiliation visited upon the black man. And there was nothing in my mind that (laughs) considered the possibility that, that this this will, would not be taken away from the face of the earth. So I think it was that. It, when you speak about certainty in that way, it makes me think about hope. It feels like that kind of certainty is a, another word for hope. And I'd love you to reflect on the idea of hope, especially now, given that the uncertainty that we see now is not necessarily because of a political system. It's because of this virus, something that nobody could have planned or anticipated. Um, so I wonder, firstly, is the certainty that comrades felt during the struggle, was that certainty a form of hope, number one? And then secondly, in the absence of certainty today, how do we think about hope? It's a, it's a very, very crucial question, Sisonke, and I, I grapple with it every day personally because, you know, almost every day we've had deaths or we've had people with severe illnesses or, you know, usually in a normal life you hear, you know, once every six months or something or three months somebody has died or you have to attend a funeral. But this has just been like a was galloping through every day there's something happening and it's deeply disturbing. The only way I've been able to kind of cope with it is to say that, you know, there's something happening at a deeper spiritual level that we don't understand. And the most important thing is that we have to accept fully. We've got to accept this fully. And then we've got to try and focus our minds only on that which we are able to do and that is positive because if you focus your minds on all these things 
all these awful things, you are paralyzed. And so, the, you know, the fear can grip you to an extent that you just think, oh, this, the world is coming to an end, or what is going on? I think the only thing is that we have to say, and I've been speaking to young professionals, young people who I've worked with, and said, look, I know it's, it is as it is. One can't talk it away. You can't, can't talk a fire at UCT and say, oh, give it some positive spin. <laughs> but, you, but you can say nobody got hurt in the fire. You can say that, you know, they bring the fire under control. You can say that the students were all evacuated. So it's a very mm. thin line, you mm. know, of helping people cope and helping yourself cope. I think that's a really important point because in some way what you're gesturing towards is the role of the writer, which is to help people make sense of the spiritual and emotional tumult of the times. To say, yes, let's acknowledge that it is an uncertain time. And what do we do with that uncertainty? And so one of the things you said just now in your response is that you worry that maybe writers aren't necessarily getting their heads around that. And yet in many ways, when I think about your writing and what it's meant to me, what it's meant is an attempt to really grapple with making meaning out of very difficult things. Um, that your work has been about storytelling and writing the narratives of a nation. And so the question for me is, where did that come from in you? What made that be the path that you decided to take in terms of using your own power? Most of it uh, from the time when I was, when I kind of became a journalist, most of it was inadvertent. So it wasn't really, oh, I decided I'm going to do this. I always say that I didn't choose journalism, journalism chose me because I didn't set out to do that. It just came upon me. But even with the writing of the stories, I didn't start with saying, I want to write these stories. I mean, the books I'm talking about. It was my impulse post-1990 to feel that I want to take my writing onto a higher level, that I don't just want to be, you know, a reporter or a journalist, um, that I want to be able to write books if I'm able to. And so with that in mind... I started on that path. And the first thing, of course, what evolved was that I had met Albie Sachs as he came back from exile. And I loved his writing. I just loved the writing. And I started writing. I interviewed him. And then in that process, I just took a chance and I said to him, Albie, you know, can I bring you some of my writing and would you, you know, would you comment? Because I'd really like to be, I'd really like to take my writing onto a high level. And that's where it started because he then read and then uh, offered me a four and a half month part-time research assistant with the University of London where he was based then. And I worked for him and eventually for Kada Asmal as well. And in that process, they asked me to write about the Bill of Rights and illustrated with stories about women who fought for these rights. In their stories, it actually meant, you know, they wanted to show that the Bill of Rights wasn't just a list of, of, of clauses, but it actually flowed from struggle. 
And so I wrote the stories of five women, I think it was five, including myself. And I called it for the freedom of our daughters. And once Albert read that and he said to me, Zubaira, you have to write your story. And that's how it happened. So each thing had a little kind of stepping stone. People now ask me, oh, you write women's stories. and It wasn't like that. It wasn't that I took a decision. <laughs> there was no plan. No, there was no plan. It was just <laughs> how it evolved, you know. It was how the stories came to me that I felt, oh, I have to do this. It's amazing how when you look back, it looks to outside people as though everything was planned, uh, that one thing logically led to the next thing. And I guess in some ways that's what happens, that you take this inadvertent step and then it leads to this and it leads to that. Uh, and it looks as if you planned it when really it just happened. No, it just happened. Even the, even the, the events of the 80s, people always ask me, how could you, how did you, how could you do all those things? And then I say to them, it's just like, it wasn't really I'm doing these things. It was like stepping into a river at a certain point, deciding to step into the river and then, woo, there you're going, you know, <laughs> whatever was going on, you know, and yeah. carry through that and yeah. you're dealing with that, you know. So it's not, it's not like, oh, you decide I'm going to fight. And I, well, I mean, obviously you make a commitment, but all these things that happened was as it unfolded, you know, as the events unfolded. Can you talk to us a little bit about the relationship between your training as a journalist, so that writing for newspapers in an era that was very difficult, and your relationship to writing longer form? You know, you said you wanted to take things to the next level, but was it easier to write the books because you had the journalism background? Or... You know, does writing short story, you know, on a deadline, does that train you in a different way? And actually, it wasn't helpful at all. It was extremely helpful, Sisonke, because I wasn't aware of it really, but I was at UCT for the three months that I did the first draft of Our Generation. I was at the Africa Gender Institute, and we were seven women from the continent, and we were writing, and we were living there. And it was a fabulous, fabulous experience. And oh, I wish I could have something like that again. But what was so interesting for me is that all the other women were coming from academic backgrounds, and I was the only journalist. And I was churning out copy, I mean, I tell you, <laughs> because I had worked out, if I've got three months and I want to produce 60,000 words, let's say, then how many words do I produce every day? You know, I'd worked that out. And so I was working on, on that sort of, you know, basis. And I couldn't believe, you know, the fact that in academia, it's a different pace and there isn't that kind of urgency or doesn't seem to be that kind of urgency. So I was extremely grateful for my journalism training because I felt that I, I was trained to to say things simply, I was trained to say things quickly, and I was able to let go, because with the whole process of writing books, the most difficult thing is to accept that you want to do better, but you can't, <laughs> you have to let it go. Finishing. And journalism, and journalism, <laughs> journalism really prepares you for that, because every day you've got to let go, even if the piece isn't where you want it to be. Absolutely. So it's a fantastic training, I think, for anybody who wants to 
be a writer. What year were you at AGI? It was 2000, I think. 2000. Somewhere around then. Okay. Where were you? I was working at the AGI in 1999 and studying at the same time. Oh my goodness. So we missed So I was at other. UCT. Yeah. But just by that much, it literally oh. would have been months. Yeah. Wow. And I remember that all those women who used to do the writing residencies at AGI, I used to look at them and be like, oh, one day I'll be like that. <laughs> And now you are. And now you are. Oh my God. One day I'll be a writer, you know? So, yeah, yeah, it was a a beautiful program. And it was so, uh, and I've said this to you before, but so inspiring to have the physical presence of women with that kind of experience and that level of fierceness. And this speaks very much to your generation of women, very comfortable and self confident. Without being arrogant, that, you know, that beautiful place of just um, self-acceptance, but also accepting of younger people who were looking at you with admiration. You know, there is something, and that's why I love the title of your book, Our Generation, because it really was a very special generation of people who pushed very hard, but also had a way about them that was incredibly embracing. I wonder whether there were people in the generation above you. You've spoken about Albie Sachs and him inspiring you to write. And I wonder if there are people and women in particular of that slightly older generation that you looked to as you started to think about writing and as you started to think about what your role was going to be in the new South Africa. Well, I, I, with women, I mean, I was influenced also by Ama Atta Aido and uh, love the stories. I hope I can write something similar write short stories, you know, mm. in that way at some point. And then Wangari Matai has been just absolute inspiration. And then locally, Loretta Nobo, I had the good fortune of meeting, spending time with. So there are endless, there were endless people, Sindiwe Magona, there are just so many people, you know, gems that we have. And that's what I keep on saying you know, we have such gems. We've had gems and we've got gems. I'm speaking to one right now. And, um, <laughs> you know, no, we do, but we seem to minimize. We seem to not appreciate and understand what we have. We're always complaining or being miserable or whatever, <laughs> criticizing <laughs> ourselves and being very hard on ourselves. And I think we've got to move away from that. We've got to start seeing the richness that we have because we have an incredible richness and yet we are hearing only that we are the worst people in the world and we are bad and we are... That's mm. the song, that's mm. the movie that's playing in our minds at the moment. And I'm hoping with the work that I'm doing to really contribute to shifting that movie, you know, that narrative, mm. that story, because unless we shift that, we are going to continue being mired in controversy and, you know, we're not going to move forward. Mm. But if we shift that, then we will loosen the energies And I've seen it one by one, just working with people one by one. Once you change the the mindset and you tell them how amazing they are and how skilled they are and how beautiful they are and 
you know, what possibilities they have and what they could possibly consider, then it changes their whole world. So it's not not money that we need or it's, you know, it's not major, I don't know, plans and policies and that. It's that working at restoring the, the, the confidence and mm. healing people. That's what's required. Mm. And people are going to do it on their own. Yeah. And and a lot of that work that you do around writing women's stories is very much about changing the narrative about how we talk about ourselves to remind us that we have produced greatness. The story of Mom Charlotte, I think, is an excellent example. And I would love for you to talk about why you were drawn to her. Why why her story? That too was inadvertent, Sisonke. It's strange. People don't, I don't know if they believe me, but. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, sometimes I think there's something happening to me. These stories just come, you know. I was walking on the campus of the University of the Free State and I saw a poster and it mm. was a memorial lecture uh, dedicated to Mum Charlotte. And I was with Professor Jonathan Jansen at the time, and I said to him, you know, what, who is this woman, what is, you know, of course I'd I'd heard her name, but any detail I didn't know. So Mm. he referred me to an office on the campus, and he said to me that they should be able to provide me with more information. So I went to the office, and after my visit, I was not impressed. I was not pleased. I was just, I thought, how can you have something based on such flimsy, you know, information? And that's what I said to him. I said, you know, no, there isn't really proper information. And then he looked at me and he said, so why don't you, don't you want to do the research and write write the story? And you know, Sisonke, what is amazing is that I looked at him and I said, yes. And I've never done this before because (laughs) lots of people come to me and ask me to write their story, you know, from people in squatter camps to people who are judges, who are politicians. And I always say no. And I say no as a first, you know, I always say no because I know you have to live with that person. You know, you've got to live with that person. And so it's a huge commitment. I mean, if you if you choose somebody, it's so yeah. easier to write about the dead. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, you have to live with. I mean, you have to live with that person in your head to be able to mm. write. But with Mum Charlotte, I don't know what happened. I just said yes. I just said not because she was dead, but because I thought I just I don't actually know why I said yes. And in the three years that followed, I actually kind of beat myself up because I thought, why did I say yes? Because it was the hardest book to write. It was really, really hard. Why? Because there was nobody alive that I could corroborate information with. I only found one woman who was 106 years old. And I <laughs> and I interviewed a Gogo Siete in Zebedelia oh, Township. It. And she had met Mum Charlotte, and when I get to her, she's in a wheelchair, and she's with four other women, and they're all teachers, and she was a teacher. And and one or two of the women in the room was our daughters. And it was just an extraordinary confirmation that that she she just told me a small story, but 
the story confirmed that, you know, the status of Charlotte at that time, it did confirm, you know, that for me. And that was so beautiful. But but I really, really tried. I really tried to find people, to find documentation. And that took huge amounts of effort, huge amounts of effort. And there were huge gaps also, you know. So it was really hard. Well, I think, you know, one of the things as I was preparing for this conversation, it's become very clear that so many of the names and of the events and so much of our history that lives within memory doesn't actually live in archives. And that the work of including those voices, even if it doesn't seem as though that's the main work, is actually really crucial because the wonderful thing about today is that young people can Google, you know, they, they may not recognize a name, uh, but having the name included in your work makes them think, what, who's that person? What did that mean? Mm. Um, and so I do think that that work of narrative building is very much, you know, part of the legacy that you've already built for us. Okay, so the, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was to go back to this question of, of your generation. Ellen Kuzwire describes the work as being looking at the patterns behind the struggle. And a lot of your time and energy has been dedicated towards looking at the role of women as key protagonists in fighting against apartheid, fighting against colonization, etc. So then 1994 comes and women get into parliament and we have our democracy. And then something interesting happens to your generation. And I'm curious to hear about your reflections <laughs> about what the post-94 era has brought. Because there's only a few of you that I can still maintain a beautiful, wonderful, open and honest conversation with. And so I'm, I'm curious about what your reflections has been about the, the other half of the legacy of your generation. Well, I would say it's, it's mixed on the one hand, I'm exceptionally proud of so many people who have, you know, who in the, I would say, in the trenches with me, and we now see occupy the highest possible positions in the world, for that matter, Pumzile Mlamunuka so and proud. others, uh, Cheryl Carolus, various other people. And so it's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary experience because we, we all knew one another in our 20s. And we were very young, actually. It was really, that's how when they say today that, oh, these people are so young, they don't know what they're doing. And I think, no, we did our best work when we were so young. So don't do that. <laughs> don't say that, you know. I've been so proud of people, of, you know, to see where they, you know, where they've landed and uh, people who have been ambassadors, people who have, who have worked really hard in government, you know, plodded away and done honorable jobs, you know, mm. they, they haven't been part of the corruption. But then there's also been the the layer of people who went just went back to their to their normal jobs and uh, and I have a great deal of empathy or I've got a real soft spot for many of those people because 
they continue the work, they continue plodding along. And, you know, people say to me, oh, but people are disillusioned, they don't want anything, activists are disillusioned. I said, but there are activists all over the country that are doing work quietly, they're teachers, they they doctors, they psychologists, they journalists, and they're carrying on, you know. And when I feel if 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 I don't see that anymore, then it would be very, very, very difficult to for me to carry on. But I see that all the time and I see the constant dedication. And then the third layer I would say that is probably most upsetting are the people who are unemployed and who are really, really struggling, you know, and are really at the lowest end. And that breaks my heart, and I try and respond, and I'm not always happy with the responses of people who do have jobs and who think that people who don't have jobs should be able to find something to do. You can't find something to do. You've got to, we who have jobs have to give to those who don't have jobs. And so that is the downside, you know, that I've experienced and I've seen some of our women in very dire circumstances. So it's a mixed bag, you know, Mm, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about why you chose Antiaisha Dawood as a project of thinking and writing and analysis. She's someone we don't know as well as Mom Charlotte. And, And so I'm curious about that project. I'm feeling like a stuck record because I'm going to say again it was inadvertent. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should stop asking the question about why you chose. And maybe I should ask the question and say, what did you discover once you you began? (laughs) Yeah, I was a young journalist and I ended up going to, it was 1981, I ended up going to Worcester to interview her family because at the time there was the, the government was trying to impose a, an election on Indians. And then there was an effort to boycott the elections. And then I was asked to write some stories for a publication that was going to come out. And so I traveled to Worcester and I met the family. You know, I sat with the story for 26 years before I wrote it. In that moment that I had that, short interaction there with the family, I knew that this is a story that's got to be told. Because I came upon a family that was extremely frightened. They were so frightened that they were even prepared to give me some of those beautiful photographs that are in the book um, and just almost like handed to me so that can somebody else have this because they'd been so traumatized by the harassment. And then I started understanding. I had heard the story when I was younger already because my parents knew of the story, but I started piecing it together. And then I, as I pieced it together, I eventually, when they came back from exile and I met both the husband and the wife, I started realizing that this is something that could be written as a love story and that would make it more widely accessible, but at the same time tell the political story. 
And so that's what I did. And I still feel that that book should be in every school. I mean, all, all three of the books I feel should be read, it's, you know, widely. But that story, I think maybe younger people would relate to more easily because it's written in a, as a love story. Yeah, and absolutely. she was extraordinary. I mean, she was extraordinary. Uh, she refused to spy on Madiba. If she had agreed to that, she would have been able to stay in the country. But because she refused to be informer, she was exiled and given exit permit for 23 years. So it's an extraordinary story. It's amazing. When you think about what people sacrificed and what people gave up, it is truly incredible. It is. I would love to talk a little bit about what your hopes are for this coming generation and their capacity to tell stories. Are you, are you energized by them? Are you hopeful for them? I think they are amazing. I just think they are at a much higher level than what we were. They start at a higher level. When people tell me countries going to the dogs and this and that and the other, then I just say, well... The people I'm meeting all the time and talking to, even if they're unemployed, they are just making so much effort and have so much creativity and are trying little things all over the country. And that's a real tribute to all of us because it means that the flowers are blooming. And I have no doubt that we're going to push through. I really don't have any doubt. I mean, if you think of, you know, the level of bad behavior at the moment, then you then you think, oh, my God, what are people trying to tell their children, you know, show their children? But from my experience, you have that level of bad behavior, and then you have the absolute decency and creativity that I see blossoming, and the efforts even in the poorest of poor homes that people are making to get their children to school and to help and whatever. So I prefer to choose to work with that part or that side of the equation because I said to a group of young professionals in Johannesburg, yes, there are all these things happening. Yes, they're not going to deny it, but where are you going to put your energy? Are you going to put your energy with that level of nonsense that's going on and, you know, repeat and enlarge that level of nonsense? Or are you going to put your energy with the creative and the forward-looking and the forward-movement side and enlarge that energy? Mm. And I think that is the essential point that we've got to make. I personally, I've decided I'm not getting involved with, I mean, I think there's enough people fighting it out. I will support pro-democracy, whatever campaigns. I'll, I mean, in principle, I support all of that. But I'm going to put my energy, I don't know how long God will still give me, you know, life. I'm using all my energy to help inspire and to build confidence and to look forward to pushing the boundaries and transcending onto a higher level. That's what I feel I want to do. I really don't want to be involved with, you know, is Ace Mahashule this or is Ace Mahashule that, really. <laughs> there are some words that won't even come out of my mouth. Um, some names I refuse to utter. One of the beautiful things that I've enjoyed about this conversation and that I find when I read you is that 
in your mouth and in your hands, words are healing. And so on, on that note, I would love to hear you read a small section from our generation. I think we've talked about it and I'd love to hear you read it because it's one of my favorite passages. Sure, I will do that. It's on page 144 in our generation. I don't know who I am. I'm sitting in my garden on a low wooden chair, unaware of the grass beneath my feet. I don't know who I am. I'm not sure. I've been so used to being the journalist or the activist. Now I'm able to be neither. The pumps did not help. The nebulizer helped temporarily. I just could not breathe. I'm slowly realizing that this cannot be a physical thing, that there is an emotional component, that I have to attend to the emotional. I resigned from my job as group parliamentary editor. It is as if all my skill has left me, flown away like a bird to other shores. I feel naked, vulnerable, barely able to get through the day. Thank God I have Rushka to see to. She needs her food when she comes home from school this afternoon. I cannot disintegrate completely. After 12 years, I'm back with the therapist, Ramsey Carlson. You are depressed, he says. Work with me. And I'm trying to do that under this tree. I have strict instructions to let my mind break through the barriers, closing it off. Think back and let yourself feel the emotions that you have never felt, he said. This morning and every morning I think back. I take my little blue notebook and write without thinking. I'm following Ramsey's orders. I must just write in an unstructured way. Just let it come as it pops into my head. I recall my feelings as I've been doing for weeks now. I am remembering. Not remembering as I recalled events that day at the TRC. Then I spoke in a numbed state, recalling but not feeling, hanging on to the little pearl beneath my tongue. I did not want to feel because I was so afraid, I was too afraid that it would overwhelm me. And I was right. The emotions are strong. They come in waves. No, not in waves. Waves are regular, steady, predictable mostly. These come in tidal waves, out of the blue, unexpected. Some days and not others. I'm tired of writing. I gaze at the lemon tree with its hard green lemons, unripened, tight, hard. I place a little blue book and the pencil on my chair and step into the house to make myself a cup of tea. Just beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Nadia had a conversation with a few young writers the other day and there are so many ways in which motherhood impacts on how we write and why we write. And what I appreciate here is, again, that very subtle, gentle way that you remind us that a reason to keep going through depression, the reason to write in that little blue book is for that 
that daughter of yours who has come, what a, you know, what an amazing <laughs> sort of creation. Um, but also that sense that, that writing really is healing and that sometimes you need to put the book down and go inside and have a cup of tea as well. <laughs> it's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you, Sisolke. You're so good for myself. Well, it's, I mean, <laughs> I think that your optimism is so rare and it's a very difficult time to be optimistic because there's so much happening in the world that feels visceral. And as we began this conversation, you talked about living with and through uncertainty. And it has been such a calming conversation for me <laughs> because there is this way in which you just describe a life of many tumultuous and many difficult things, but you're always finding that thread of optimism and choosing to focus on what is possible rather than what is not possible. And I know that there's a deep vein of spirituality for you that has been a guiding light and a guiding force. And I think that you really radiate that. And so I'm so grateful for your presence and your way, and most importantly, for your decisions that you have made about who to write about and how to write about them for posterity and for all of us. Thank you. I appreciate. <laughs> you know, <laughs> writing is often a very lonely activity, eh? And uh, we as writers, we are all in our own little silos. So that means a lot. Now we have a reading for Stella Nyansi as well. I am doing this reading for Dr. Stella Nyansi because I want to, you know, share with her what comes from her heart. And I'm reading from my book, Our Generation, from page 126, and I hope that it would give her comfort. Pain is universal, yet so particular. We all have our own ways of dealing with pain. It's not something that can be legislated into uniformity. Often foreigners expect pat answers to questions of reconciliation and forgiveness in our country. But I know that there can never be a single solution following a single formula. There are those who marvel at Madiba's ability to forgive and quote his stance as the ideal. But then on close examination, we know that he too is conflicted. He's able to have tea with Betsy Fervut, the wife of one of the prime architects of apartheid, but cannot reconcile with Winnie, his wife and long-term companion. Human emotions are complex and cannot be slotted into neat little boxes. Each of our journeys is unique, similar yet so dissimilar. Any notion that someone somewhere out there in the world will be able to take away the pain lodged within our spirits is mistaken. We each have to trudge our own path through that pain. And dear Stella, I'm so aware that this is what you are having to face. All the best. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. So I will read from the conclusion from the last chapter in The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela. And of course, it's a reading in, in honor of and in celebration of Stella Nyanzi, who is another fearless woman. 
There is little appetite in today's world for stories that aren't straightforward, especially when those stories are about women. We like our heroines to be courageous, but we don't want them to be messy. We want them to confront patriarchy, but we don't want them to have lovers half their age. We praise women for surviving abuse and torture, but when the resultant trauma and suffering makes them angry and volatile, we fear them, we deride them. There aren't enough stories shared of real-life women who are both courageous and messy. There aren't enough stories about women prepared to use violence. Whether or not you endorse that violence, the point is that such women challenge every stereotype there is about women and their nature. Winnie Mandela's story is crucial in this regard. It follows an unconventional path. She was her husband's voice throughout those long years he spent in prison. But she was so much more than that. Winnie was her own person. She fought for others. And when you read her words and you reflect on her life, you can see that she fought for herself too. Restoring Winnie Mandela to her rightful place in history, in spite of her contradictions, is only just. The larger-than-life figures who populate our history books capture our imagination because they have lived their lives in ways that give us deeper insight in what, into what it means to be human. They allow us to glimpse what is possible. Even when they fall short, their attempts to fly are inspiring. Men are given this latitude all the time. In seeing Winnie more fully than she might ever have thought possible, affirming her existence, recognizing and remembering and critically appraising her life in all its complexity and drama, we reward her sacrifices without exonerating her sins. Glossing over the difficulties by erasing this inconvenient woman is tempting, yet it comes at a cost. If we erase Winnie, then we must also erase those she fought against, the terrifying police with their vicious dogs, the prison guards who tortured her, the authorities who banished her from her home. We must erase her horror and that of her comrades when yet another dead activist was found in a crumpled heap after an interrogation. Winnie reminds us that the structural violence of racism, poverty, and oppression didn't end when apartheid was dismantled. But Winnie Mandela was a fighter, and her legacy is precisely this, to remind us to keep fighting. For this we owe her, and all the unruly women like her, an everlasting debt. I cannot thank you enough for this fantastic conversation, for your beautiful words, for your reminder about optimism and the better nature of our angels. Thank you so very much, Zubeda. Sisonke, it was an absolute pleasure. It energized me for the day. It'll keep me going. And to all of you there at Penn, South Africa, and more broadly in the world, keep up the good work. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Thank you so much to our board member, Sisonke Msimang, for chairing, and to Zabeda Jaffa for her courage, her generosity, and her powerful rising. This episode was produced by the wonderful Fasti Kalitz and Andre Burnett. Thanks to our brilliant podcast project coordinator, Lara Buxbaum, to Kate Hyman for her support, to the board of Penn South Africa. Thanks too to Nduko Omatigera and Romana Caccioli from Penn International for their support because this project would not be possible without them. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech 
and our continuous solidarity with imprisoned writers across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. Thank you so much for listening.